This morning we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in 1 Peter, and so let me just remind you of where we were and kind of where Peter is headed, and, and hopefully that will kind of bring some things together for us. And the last time we were together, we were in 122 through 25, looking at 1 Peter. And the overwhelming idea that he talked about in there is effectively because you find yourself in submission to the gospel, you need to be loving those people around you. Because you find yourself in submission to the gospel, he writes it this way. He says, because you have been purified by your obedience to the truth, love one another. And on the basis of this, then he goes through here in chapter 2, and he begins to talk about all this junk we need to strip away from our lives. And he makes it finally into verse 5. And he starts talking about, you need to love one another, you need to strip this junk out of your lives, because you're, you're being built into something, you're being made into something. And, and the junk in your life has no place in this new building that's being created. And there's only a place for a vibrant expression of brotherly love for one another. And yet, we find ourselves in the midst of a political season that is anything but loving, Right? And so no matter whether you support Bernie, you're feeling the burn, right? Or the other end of the spectrum, and you are a trumpet. You love all things Trump. You love that he wants to tear everything down, and it's going to be great. I can't tell you how, but just know this. It is going to be great. Believe me when I say this. It's going to be great. I have a whole host of products that tell you it's going to be great. And this is kind of where you are. And every other candidate you look at, you think is some form of antichrist and going to bring down. So if you're on the Trump side, you think everybody else is going to bring it down. If you're on the Bernie side, you think everybody else is going to bring it down. Polar opposites, right? Right. Incredibly different from one another. And we find ourselves Christians in the middle. And so no matter who you support as a Christian, according to 1 Peter, you find yourself in the middle. Why? Because he starts off this letter, let me remind you, he addresses Christians as elect exiles. This is not our home. This is not our home. There's no process of political machination whereby you might make this place our home. There is no conception of America, whether it be in the 50s, the 20s, or the 1860s, whereby it closely approximates anything close to heaven. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? It seems to me that we increasingly put our faith and our confidence in our ability to sway people to our own individual perception and whereby if we only get our candidate elected, America might return to this great resurgence of faith in Jesus Christ. That's not going to happen. Should you stump, should you uh, try and get people to vote for people of character? Absolutely. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that in the midst of this, you are a Christian. That means your language has to be totally different. That means your hope has to be totally different. That means every part of the process whereby you engage in political debate, it can't be shaped according to the fact that you find yourself in the GOP or the Democratic Party. That is not your identity. That cannot be your identity. If you find yourself more influenced, more uh, directed by your party affiliation than your affiliation with Jesus Christ, then I would begin to question your salvation. Because our identity can solely and only ever be found in being a Christian. Being a follower of Jesus Christ. You are not at home here. You're not. You're going to be disappointed. 
you're likely going to have someone be elected that's going to disappoint you. You need to be ready for that. But God's word will never, can never disappoint you. And we are called to find ourselves being faithful to it. Do you understand me? And in the midst of seeking to be faithful to it, we find ourselves having to do certain things and cut other things out of us. Cut other things out of our life. When we are walking through, and back in chapter 1, and he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, he effectively says, you are saved for the manifestation of what? You are saved for sincere brotherly love. This is what he writes to us. Your salvation is not given to you so that you can have an extension of social liberty, so that you can go and do whatever you want with whoever you want it. What he writes is, is you have been saved so that you might manifest, show, display, engage in sincere brotherly love. And on the basis of this, he calls us to this really difficult thing, loving one another. Because you've been saved, Peter writes, you need to love one another. And interestingly, he founds all of this not on, on creating this vibrant and beautiful social ethic. He doesn't write it and say, that, look, if you love one another, things are just going to be so much better. Everybody's going to get along. You guys will sing kumbaya all day long. You're going to hold hands. You're going to sway back and forth. And everything's going to be wonderful. No, he founds this not in the creation of some type of false utopia, but he founds this on the validity, on the assurance of God's word. Look what he goes on to say there in verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God's word applied to your hearts is what brought you to salvation. God's word, when applied to your heart, it led you into repentance. It's what led you to, brought you into salvation. This is what Peter tells us. And so we see on the one hand that we are called to love one another. And then on the other, he comes into it and he says, okay, now that you've got that under control, or at least you know the difficult path that I've called you to, you've got a bunch of junk in your life and we might as well address it now. You've got a bunch of junk in your life. Let's address it. Read with me in verses 1 through 3. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so in the midst of this, look what he does. He describes five negative character traits. Now, Oftentimes, when we begin to think about those things that we kind of jettison when you come to faith, we think of kind of gross, immoral failure. And so you say, when you come to faith, you have to give up pornography. When you come to faith, you have to give up uh, being an alcoholic. When you come to faith, you give up being a drug addict. When you come to faith, you give up cheating on your wife, this expression of adultery. And so we understand these things. We're no longer this person. We've put on the new, we cast off the old. And it's interesting to me that when Peter chooses to come up with five expressions that are killers in the church, he finds things that are readily at home in most American churches. They're not big offensive things. These aren't the things that when somebody stands up and they say, hi, my name's Matt and I'm full of malice. We're like, hello, Matt, I'm glad you're here. I'm full of malice too, bro. These aren't the things that we, we readily recognize and struggle with. If somebody were to stand up and say, hi, my name's mad and I'm an alcoholic, we would recognize that and say, that's good, I'm glad, bro, you're working through that. But when somebody stands up and they say, hi, my name's Matt and I'm full of malice and I want to see it visited upon all of you, you'd say, ooh, he's got some issues. He's got some issues. I really, Matt, I prefer passive aggressive. Can we work on that, buddy? 
Look what he says here. He describes it and he says, so put away. Peter, in, in a real sense, is trying to create in our minds this visual that is surrounded by, we're wearing all of this clothing, we're wearing all of this baggage. So you, so you can imagine that I have five jackets on. And so I've got a jacket that is, that is all malice. I've got a jacket that is all deceit. I've got a jacket that is all hypocrisy. And then I've got a jacket that is all envy and a jacket under that that is all slander. And so I'm walking around something like this, and it's quite obvious to you, because I've got all these puffy jackets on, and I can't put my arms down because I have all these things that are working against who Christ created me to be. When we have these things evident in our lives, we are unable to fulfill the primary obligation that he's called us to in 122 through 25, loving one another. We cannot love one another if we have this junk in our lives. We can't do it. And so that's why after giving us the command to love one another, he immediately goes after those things that damage, that destroy, that render inert our ability to love one another. Now some of us look at this list and say, well, these are things I'll work on later. But what I want you to recognize is that with every bit of intensity that he comes and commands us to love one another, so too he comes in and commands us to strip away this junk from our lives. You see, it's in the midst of craving the pure spiritual milk that we are to be casting off, getting rid of these things. So let's walk through these five and see how they are present and working in our lives. He starts off and he says, put away all malice. Peter comes to us and he recognizes that within a church, there are people you just don't like. There are people you don't like. This is a natural extension of the human condition. You aren't perfect and neither are the people around you and there is animosity frequently between you. Some of you are sitting on a pew beside a person that you really wish they would move. And next week you've made a mental note, so this is where they sit. I've always wondered. I'll never sit here again and I'll tell them it has to do with the air is better over there and I'll be right. Malice is effectively wanting to see ill will, wanting to see harm come to those around you. Do you see how this is antithetical to a Christian expression of loving one another? He writes to us and he says, you're to love one another. You cannot love another person if you want to see bad things happen to them. It, it, it's, it's just sick. You can't do it. If you actively want to see bad things happen to someone else, that's not love. If you believe it is, I would love to sit down with you and share with you why you are, friend, delusional. You can't want bad things for somebody and love them at the same time. You just can't. But this is what we've grown to tolerate in church. This is what we've grown to tolerate in church. You see, for many of us, it starts with relative indifference to those around us. We're relatively indifferent. We don't really care what happens to those around us as long as they don't take our parking space or cause us some great inconvenience. We're relatively indifferent to those people we worship with. It's a short jump from there to malice. Indifference and malice. Indifference is this passive-aggressive expression of malice. You're more preoccupied with what's going on in your own heart. You're more preoccupied with, 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 with your own life with those things that you find interesting than being of service to anybody around you. You can see how the Christian idea of loving one another and malice are so completely contrary to one another. They are two radical poles, and they can find no ability to work in the midst of. So for the Christian, 
we recognize, we ask God, God, in what ways is my heart manifesting malice? In which way is it showing ill will to my brother or sister in Christ? And then just as we've been purified, our souls have been purified to the truth, so too we say, God, would you come and would you apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to my life? Would you come, would you help me to take off malice? Would you help me to take off malice? So for some of us today, that's our prayer. God, I don't particularly care for the people around me. I find myself being indifferent towards them. So God, would you help me take that off? Would you help me cast off indifference? God, would you help me to actively love them? And would you help me to take off the sin of malice and apply the gospel to it and to put it to death. We need to take off malice. He comes to us next and he says, so put away all deceit, lying, lying, saying anything that is anything less than the full and honest truth. Listen to me. Anything less than the full and honest truth is deceit. This is scary for some of us. Some of us are just hoping that our, our wives or our husbands don't ask us the right question to prompt anything less than the full and honest truth. Well, those things that work out in your marriage in the midst of, of weight loss and gain uh, programs are not my issue, and those aren't Peter's issues either. But what he's talking about is deceit that would seek to lie to those around us. Lie to those around us. Lying, presenting a false image, is opposed to loving one another, we can't love one another if we can't be honest with one another. Marriages are a key place where honesty, if it doesn't prevail, it, it erodes marriages. We recognize that when you begin to lie, the other spouse, the other party looks to their, to their husband, they look to their wife and say, well, exactly when did you cease to be truthful with me? So was this part true and this part was a lie? Where is the line of demarcation between truth and falsehood? You see why for the Christian, there is no room, there is no place for deceit, casting ourselves in a more positive image than we are. You need to know who you are, but you need to know who you are in Jesus, not who you are in the minds of those you seek to impress. Deceit has no place in the life of the Christian. And so just as we cast off malice, so too we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, my prayer is that you would rid my heart of deceit, rid my heart of deception, that you would rid my heart of trying to be more than it is, that you'd rid my life of trying to be more than I am, and you would apply the gospel to me and you'd help me to put it to death and lay that over there. We need to put off all malice, we need to put off all deceit. Look what he says next. We need to put off all hypocrisy. You ask a lot of people to describe Christians, and they're going to say the church is nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. It's a great shame and a great sadness that the church, which should be founded on love and honesty, is known by a lot of non-believers as being just a place where hypocrites gather on Sundays. In some sense, we've created this mess for ourselves, and in a way differently than perhaps you're thinking. We've created this mess for ourselves by requiring people to be perfect. I don't think it's by tolerating sin. And I know that, that serves a place, but I think the primary place where we have raised up hypocrites is requiring our people to be perfect. If you require people to be perfect, you're begging them to either lie to you or to be a hypocrite. It's just what we're doing. 
When we don't create an, an atmosphere in a place where somebody can come in and tell you, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what my wife and I are struggling with. We are this close to divorce. When we don't tolerate that, when we don't welcome that honesty, we are creating a place that is, that is building, making, specializing in the creation of hypocrites. There could be nothing else. Because we're not allowing people to come in and to be what the church is. Recognize, friends, the majority of the time Jesus spent with people was with people whose lives were completely jacked up. There's just no other way to describe it. He's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors, people that made their living in immoral things and other people that made their money fleecing good, solid, working people. And what did Jesus do? He welcomed them. He bid them come. Why? Because he found in prostitutes and tax collectors people who were so completely broken with this sin in their life that they knew there was nothing they could do to posture themselves to make them look better than they were. Why? Because everybody in their society knew they had messed up. So that's why when Jesus gathered around them and, and, and people looked at him and said, look, he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. Why? On the basis that he's hanging out with people that are public sinners what we created in the church are private sinners we tell people effectively we're okay with you sinning just don't tell anybody about it okay we don't want to damage our church we don't want to damage our brand we don't want to damage faith in jesus christ where everybody else recognize jesus christ and faith in his name can stand in spite of your sin in spite of your failings it saved you in spite of them. It brought you from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. This is what the church did. This is how it engages. This is how it must be. We cannot expect, demand perfection on the part of our people. We can't. There's only one person that we can expect and demand perfection from. And it's Jesus Christ. And everything else is us recognizing our failures, us recognizing our imperfections, not embracing them, but taking those two and throwing them on the cross of Christ and saying, God, in spite of my imperfections, in spite of my struggles, you saved me, save me still. There's no place for hypocrisy in the church. The antidote to hypocrisy is being open and inviting to telling people, look, man, I love you in spite of your failings. Your relationship can be saved. Why? Not because nobody found out about it and you managed to escape your sin becoming public. Your marriage can be saved because the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the business of saving and restoring relationships. Amen? There's no place for hypocrisy. We need to to ask God and God, just confess, we have all been hypocritical. We've all smiled in the church when we're crying in the parking lot. Some of us are smiling in this moment when we're dying on the inside. Our relationships are corroding away. Our, our, our family structure is corroding away. We feel like everything is slipping out from the edge of our hands. We need to be honest and open with one another. And when we're anything less than this, we're practicing deceit and we're actively engaging in being a hypocrite. I'd much rather the person would be open and damaged than the person who just appears that they have all their stuff together. Look what he says. 
The gospel needs to be applied to our hypocrisy. It needs to be laid down. We can't love people if we expect them to be perfect. We can't love people if we can't be honest and open with them and share our failures with them as well. Put it away. He comes down and he finds two, and I think what he's doing is he's finding things that, that find themselves readily at home under the umbrella of hypocrisy. Readily at home under the umbrella of it. He says envy. Envy is really simple. You want stuff other people have. You want stuff other people have. And you want your stuff to be better than their stuff. It's not that you say, oh, I wish I had that and they had better. No, if they had better, you'd want that too. Envy looks at other people's life situations or life substance, kind of the stuff they have, their house, the car they drive, their wife, their husband, and you say, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. You cannot love those around you if you're busy envying those around you. And for some of us, the reason we struggle with envy is because we've never learned the secret of being content. Contentment. Paul writes, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not talking about learning to fly or jumping off a cliff and not dying. He's talking about being content. In this great uh, narrative where he talks about all the things he's overcome, he says he can do this, he can be content in the middle of struggles because Christ is sufficient. He is good, he is overcoming. Recognize what he says there. We need not be envious of those around us. Some years ago, we journeyed through the book of Philippians together. Flip to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul goes on to give this great picture of Jesus in this process of self-deprecation. But look what he says to the believer right before he does this. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Effectively, what he's doing is he's coming in and he is killing our ability to envy those people around us. If our preoccupation, if our mission is looking to see how we can build up those people around us, we have no room in our hearts for envy. If our primary outlet and avenue of investing in the lives of those people around us is this overwhelming preoccupation with, I wonder how I can see Jesus more magnified in their life. And then somebody's coming along to you and they say, I wonder how I can see Jesus more magnified in Matt's life. If this circle of seeking to invest ourselves and pour ourselves into the lives of those around us, there is no place for envy. None of us are sitting and looking at the offering plate and being like, oh, I wish I could write a check that big. Oh, it's gone. None of us are doing this if we're engaged in loving and working to pour in to build up those people around us. Do we see how that works? We cannot love those people we're in church with while at the same time wanting their stuff to be ours. Their giftings, their life are their own, given to them by God. Your life, your stuff is your own, given to you by God. When you see someone else's stuff in their life and want it to be your own, you're looking at God, the giver of all good and perfect gifts, and saying, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Did you perhaps miss me? Envy has no place in the Christian's life, and so we bring the gospel, and we apply it to it, and we take envy, and we go and we lay it down on this pile of other junk that has been stripped from our lives. 
Lastly, he says slander. And the fascinating thing is that Peter has addresses slander in two other places within 1 Peter. In 2.12, he talks about them. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, effectively, when they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then again in chapter 3 and verse 16, he brings it up. He says, having a good conscience... So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus might be put to shame. He's talking about slander brought on the Christians by those in their outward community. But it seems that slander is at home within the Christian community. And in the South, we do it so much more politely than anywhere else I've ever been in the world. And so it's either guised in the terms of a prayer request, would you pray for her? You know, she's kind of a hussy. Would you pray for him? He's kind of a liar. Would you pray for them? He's kind of a thief. So I've heard, so somebody told me. I saw it on their Facebook deal. I don't think they meant to make that public, but they did. And I looked at their pictures, and they went to Vegas, and they were gambling and drinking and doing all this stuff. And I shared it on my wall because I want them to be publicly shamed and find, find uh, you know, orthodoxy in Jesus Christ. Amen. He says there's no place for slander. There's no place for going to somebody and saying bad things about them to bring them down a rung on the ladder. Why? Because you can't love people when you're slandering them. You can't love people when you're slandering them. The chief thing, I think, that works against the Christian slandering those is not that people would say, oh, yeah, he never says anything bad about anybody, but it's this Christian's preoccupation and understanding that everyone you see from Bernie to Trump, catch this, they're made in the image and the likeness of God. They are worthy of redemption in the Savior's blood. So everybody you slander, from those people you'll never meet to your next door neighbor to your spouse, each one of those people is worthy of redemption. This is hard for us. We want to take everybody that disagrees with us in our political ideology the way that we raise families, our, our, our family values, or whatever it is, whatever your particular soapbox is, and everybody that is against this, we want to blast. There are ways to engage in dialogue that don't see you slandering those you're talking about. How can you love somebody and seek to tear them down at the same time? You can't. can't love those around you and seek to tear them down at the same time it's just not possible as a christian it's antithetical it is opposed to the gospel he lists this list of things and he says each and every one of them you take malice you take deceit you take hypocrisy you take envy you take slander you take all of these things off you apply the gospel to them and you cast them aside just as you wouldn't wear filthy clothes, so too you take all these things and cast them aside, recognizing that they are filthy. And beyond this, they will absolutely destroy any church you'll ever join. These things are cancer to the church. They're the cancer you find out about when the doctor comes in and he says, I wish we'd known, but you've only got five days to live. These things will absolutely destroy any church you've ever been a part of. We cannot slander one another. 
We cannot be envious of one another. We have to be open and honest with one another to the point where hypocrisy is not something that is encouraged, required, or tolerated. We cannot lie to one another, and we cannot hold ill will. Some of you have fractured relationships with other brothers and sisters in this church or in another church where they've gone. Get it worked out. This is not something that God tolerates. You have to work it out with your brother and sister in Christ. If you feel that I'm talking to you, I don't know most of your stories. Perhaps that's the Holy Spirit working in your heart saying, quit being a jerk and work it out with the person that you have difficulties with. There's no room for any of this in our lives. It will destroy every relationship you've been involved with, and it will absolutely destroy Jesus Christ's church. Look what he does here. Just as he found our command to love in the word, so too he turns. And effectively, this is the picture that he's created. In the midst of casting off all these things, he says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Long for pure spiritual milk. When children are born, they are born, all things being equal, with this kind of pre-programmed in ability, desire to eat to grow, to take in sustenance. This is why a lot of times now when you see a child be born, they take it and it's flesh on flesh. They put the child right on the mother's chest. And the child almost instinctively begins to kind of root down and try and figure things out, and it knows that it needs to eat. Now, it's not some process of, you know, I've been hanging out for nine months or so, kind of receiving some nutrients through the umbilical cord. Hold oh, up there! i got to figure this thing out, and so then i got to figure something else. What else is there? I'm so, so, so hungry. And then it begins to eat, and it's like, oh, this is so good. That's not it. That's not it. The hand of our maker upon them has imprinted upon them an instinctive outworking of being able to take in sustenance. So too, Christian. This command here is that you would crave, you would desire, that you would be preoccupied and want to read, to study, to apply God's word to your heart. Some of us don't have that desire. We don't have that, seems like that instinct. Still the command holds true. On those moments we feel far off from God, the command still holds true. Crave the pure spiritual milk. Long for the pure spiritual milk. In those moments when we say, there's nothing for me in there. There's nothing good for me in there. He is calling us again to crave the pure spiritual milk. And just like the instances of the child who is, who is struggling or the mother who is struggling to figure out nursing, occasionally hospitals will bring out a lactation consultant and they work with the mother and they work with the child to help these two figure things out within the church too. Corporate worship is functioning in this way. When we gather together and you see the person beside you who you know's life is broken and you see them dutifully pouring over the word of God, it's building in you a desire to study God's word. When you share with your brother and sister in Christ and say, this is my struggle, and they direct you back towards God's word, it is building in you a desire to crave the pure spiritual milk. The only way... Listen to me, the only way we're able to cast off malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and all these things, the only way we're able to cast these things off is by finding ourselves preoccupied with studying his word. There's no system of accountability. 
There's no meeting with somebody every day and them saying, I'm sorry, Doug, have you cast off these five things today? And you're like, no, I've only made it to four. It's finding ourselves in his word. He is producing in us the desires that he wants us to have. And look at the promise that he ties it to. He says, in this process of craving his word, we grow up to salvation. You know, Peter's understanding and the way that he's written about salvation in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 1, verse 9, is salvation is a current possession, but something ultimately to be received in the future. So currently you have positional salvation, but ultimate salvation is to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is something safeguarded and kept for you in heaven by God. What he's calling us to here is pressing on, maturing in our faith. You, Christian, mature in your faith, not by coming here Sunday in and Sunday out, but you mature in your faith by ingesting his word, loving his word. Surrounding yourselves with people that love his word. And the outworking of that finds you in church. It finds you in Bible studies. It finds you fostering relationships that are centered on, preoccupied with, building up holiness in you on the basis of what his word says about you. Let's look at verse 3. For those of you that have known me for, for any length of time, you know, I, I, I don't like it when people make decisions based upon their experiences. I did this and I kind of felt. I just die inwardly every time I hear someone say that. I did this and I just kind of felt. Contrary to my uh, feelings of what makes me have warm fuzzies, right? I want you to find truth in the word. What I want you to observe is that God calls us to something absolutely experiential. In verse 3, he says, if indeed, in effect, on the basis of the fact that you are purified, on the basis of the fact that you are a Christian, he is calling you to experience God. Now, he's quoting here from Psalm 34, 8, which reads, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And here he offers us a truncated version of that. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In essence, this is what Peter's doing. Your craving of his word is directly tied to your experience of him. Your craving of his word is directly tied to your experience of him. Peter is calling you effectively to this supernatural taste test. He says, you have experienced God. And on the basis of having experienced God, you know him to be good gracious and kind all these things encapsulated within that one word kratos you know him to be good you know him to be gracious and you know him to be kind and on the basis of how you've come to know him he's building into you a desire to study his word more so that you might know him more and so that you might be able to correctly apprise your life and say these are things i want to have these are things i can't have in my life Christian, recognize this. God is calling you both to know him through his word and calling you to know him by experiencing him personally. Christianity is not something that you may solely know notionally. It's not some cerebral exercise, but it is something that takes every facet of your being. It's emotional 
and intellectual. The God of the Bible loves you with every fiber, with every fiber that is in you. He created your mind to be a certain way. He created your body to be a certain way. And he calls you to know him to that same extent. Would you join me in praying? Praying that the God of the Bible would call us to put away these things. Would call us to experience him and to grow up into salvation.